1: Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me, published by Headline and coming in a new paperback edition on the 6th of February. For our fifth series of Your Book we're in the USA. And today we're surrounded by some grand literary ghosts, including Henry James and William Thackeray, as we've gone to Gramercy Park to visit an author who conjures up the past – while being very much still with us. Amour Tolles, the author of A Gentleman in Moscow and Rules of Civility. Amour let us explore his fabulous library, and we talked about rigorous book clubs, the American literary tradition, and how we get more out of the best books as we grow up, like fine wine, only without the hangover. Enjoy. This is, is this your study? Is this where you, where you work and write as well as read?
0: Yes. This is, yeah, yes. Yeah, this is my library. And and say this is where I, I tend to work. But I, I guess what defines the books in this room, for the most part, it's that it's the books that I have affected me enough, or I take seriously enough that I like to have on hand, that I expect to return to, that sort of thing. I mean, and, and I, I, I am a contemporary author, but you will find few contemporary authors on these walls. I mean, the majority of the books here are by people who are dead. Well, I guess. I've, um,
1: I've just it out a beautiful Edith Wharton edition. So it's a collection with the House of Mirth, the Reef, the Custom of the Country and the Age of Innocence. How do you feel about her New York? I always think of her as being a very sort of New York writer. Uh,
0: she's an amazing writer, um, and, and not simply in terms of her depiction of New York, which is itself fascinating, um, but as a writer of, of society, of... Uh, relationships of personal psychology, you know, she's one of the American, one of the best in America, uh, in, in the American tradition. So, um, but, but you know what I'll do is, 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 I'll tell you why that's there is, um, cause I think, you know, this, you may find this interesting. When I was, uh, turning, I'm 55 and when I was turning 40, um, I had just read a series of Uh, contemporary novels by some well-known figures, and on the whole, I was disappointed with how the books affected me. You know, I I, I did not find them to be as rich as I had hoped or as as thought-provoking or whatever, um, maybe even as entertaining. And so uh, around that time, I was reading a book uh, by the American uh, literary critic giant, uh, Harold Bloom, where he kind of talked about the books that stirred wisdom over the course of his long career of reading everything and reading it multiple times and and kind of what was it about, a book that, that would really engage him or make him think or make a lasting impression or potentially even change his life. And I walked away from reading that book and about the things that influenced him and, and really wanting to kind of circle back to spend more time reading books which were rich enough, uh, subtle enough, artistically interesting enough, demanding enough that it was the kind of book that would engage a reader um, and interest them, shape them, if they read it at the age of 20, and then at 40, and then read it again at 60 and then 80, you know, at all four times. In essence having four different experiences, and it's a rare book that really can do that. And uh, in pursuit of that, my kind of my general observation about writing and art and time is that i think that history is uh is not very good at capturing all that is great in writing or painting or music uh but but history or time is very good at shedding what is mediocre so if you're willing to kind of turn your dial back from not this, you know, what came out this month or what was came out last year, and look at 50 years ago, 70 years ago, 80 years, 100 years ago, what has kind of remained with us from that era. It, there's been a big winnowing, and the mediocre has been shoved aside. And, and you can find near the surface, you know, uh, almost anything near the surface is going to have significance and substance to it and has a good likelihood of meeting that goal of being a book that you might want to return to again and again. And so, I was saying this, and that's why I was going to redirect my reading, in, a, in essence, in that direction. And I was saying this to a friend of mine at the time, and she said, listen, I, I want to do this with you. What, you know, what, what are you going to do, and how are you going to do it? What, what, you know, how can we do this together? So we formed a reading group of There's four of us, two men and two women, and uh, we're all married, but our spouses are not involved, and we have now been reading together for 16 years. And so we read a book a month, And we target these kinds of books that are rich enough to have this sort of lasting and reverberating impact because of their artistic depth. Um, And we do it by projects. So, you know, we'll uh, do things like uh, we read um, uh, in a year, we read uh, Whitman, Dickinson, Emerson, and Thoreau, the great writers of the American Renaissance, what we call the American New England Renaissance. Um,
1: in another world, they would have been in a prog rock band, but there they are. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, I mean, those, those are probably the greatest artists who've come out of the, you know, uh, out, of, out of American creativity, and uh, you could spend your life reading just those four. Um, but, but we then read, from that, we then read five novels by Mark Twain, and then we read seven novels by Faulkner, and so I got sort of this, trying to examine what is the evolution of the American voice over the course of what, in the end, was almost a century. Um, but like that was a year for us. We read the Remembrance of Things Past, you know, from beginning to end, the seven volumes. Uh, very recently, we read with great satisfaction uh, the British writer um, uh, of uh, the Raj Quartet, uh, which, uh, you know, Paul Scott, um, which are, are not very well covered in the United States. Um, maybe I I don't know if they're, no whether they're closely read. Do you know what they are? The yeah. yeah, the jewel in the crown is, is the first of the four ah. books, and was then made into a BBC <laughs> miniseries. But but the four novels are an incredible investigation of well, I mean, sadly, the end of the British Empire because the whole book is the whole four books are set around the five years uh, before the Second World War, the five years after as uh, England is in essence losing its hold on India. And deciding to give it independence, yeah. and it's you know told from from the perspective of British uh, colonial, uh, British citizens who've lived in Ingl- India their whole lives, second generation, third generation, you know military figures, political figures, civilians, but also then the Indian uh, figures and in the various factions. Over this, and so it's this kind of uh, drama which circles back on itself because it opens with a, a crime. Uh, shortly before the Second World War, and everything that follows kind of is a reverberation around an investigation of all the people that were affected by this crime, but at the same time telling this history of, of the end of the colonial era from an Englishman's perspective. And, uh, and it's an amazing, amazing book. So, uh, you know, w- w- that's the kind of reading we do. So, so I, as, I, as I say, if you looked in this room, it's not simply books that we've read as a group, but it's in that tenor. Now I've been I'm 55, and I studied literature at Yale. I studied uh, I got a master's in literature at Stanford. Um, so I've been reading actively since I was a teenager. Uh, I've been wanted to I've been writing fiction since I was a teenager. So for me, um, I don't have an influence here. And in, you know what I have is waves of influences. You know, over the course of my life, as a younger person, you know, you fall I fell in love with Faulkner, and so you know, well. That's you know a whole, that's probably t- uh, twenty of Faulkner's novels there in various elements, including that little artistic reproduction. Mm, There's Hemingway and, and Fitzgerald right above him, you know, because these are this is sort of Americans in this a- zone. Melville, who's a huge hero of mine, Thoreau, Wh- Emerson, Whitman, as I was just saying, are great heroes of mine. You know, I think of Moby Dick is probably the most important novel to come out of the American tradition. Um, but you know, more recently, our, like my friends and I, we read. Uh, seven novels of Philip Roth, uh, really the Zuckerman-related books, ending with American Pastoral and uh, and Human Stain, which are incredible books from late later in his career. Um, but as a younger person, I, I I've been reading noir and mystery since I was a kid, and every summer I I treat myself by reading noir authors, crime authors chronologically, you know. So that's Hammett's, the work of Hammett, the works of Hammett, the works of Raymond Chandler. Uh, the works of Ross Macdonald, uh, who is a little bit lesser known in, in in Europe, but is the descendant of Chandler, and uh, ah. and, and where Chandler's writing about L.A. in the thirties and forties, uh, Ross Macdonald is writing about L.A. in the fifties uh, and sixties. So, so you is kind is of that
1: when he, did he, was that a contemporary setting for him? Uh, in each was case, he...
0: yeah. Chandler is alive so was... and writing in the thirties and forties, mm-hmm. and you know created both *The Big Sleep* and uh, and other famous, you know. Uh, noir novels and then and yes Ross MacDonald then came after him and wrote in the so lived was. and wrote in the 50s and 60s.
1: So when you were a teenager can you remember the very first novel you picked up and it felt like it was just for you it wasn't something that a parent or teacher had sort of recommended that it just came into your hands and transported you and
0: consumed you? That kind of happens in different ways over the course of uh, reader's lifetime, I, you know, f- as a young person, um, probably the um, the first big discoveries were things like. I mean, I'm going to start even a little bit before teenager, uh, you know, discovering the Hardy Boys and the great pleasure of uh, the fact that knowing, you know, reading, reading the first one, which is a mystery for young, bo- you know, young young people, reading it and then sort of realizing when you're finished and you've enjoyed it that it's one of 35 and how yeah. exciting that is you know what I mean and so and I spent a summer reading those got to the point where I was reading one a day and you know great pleasure from that uh later I discovered uh, um Ray Bradbury the great American science fiction and uh horror short story writer and read his collected uh works in essence um I've, Agatha Christie, you know, I, I read from beginning to end, and recently reread from beginning to end, uh, not long ago, um, and take great pleasure in that.
1: Gosh, with Christie, that is an undertaking, there are lot of, well, t- she's I, one I, of those I that you pick up, the, the end, there yeah, I, the I mean, I,
0: Yeah, I probably read, uh, over a two year period, read 50 of them, you know, but you're right, that's not the entire canon period. Who'd
1: you prefer, Marple or <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, I'm a Poirot person, probably. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm pro- more than a normal person, but I but I enjoy them both. I, I this last summer again in this sort of taking the summer to read crime, I read uh, the nine uh, George Smiley books by Jean Le Carre, and that was an extremely satisfying uh, reading experience um, because Le Carre is is not it, it's, a, it, it's a it's a it's a disservice. To refer to him as a genre writer, as a spy novelist, because he's he's probably one of the best um, writers of of the novel in the post war era in in England or in or in the United States too. And just as a stylist and as uh, as a psychologist, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and The Honorable Schoolboy are amazing uh, books. And so. You know, but as I say, so, so I, you know, those are kinds of fun things for me to do, too. But yes, because I went, you know, went to, yeah, I went to Stanford, I continued to read. Uh, you know, I had a, I had a phase where uh, I investigated the magical realists and the related Latin Americans. You know, here, there's, I spent obviously spent a great deal of time with the Russians, uh, which is what, you know, led me to ultimately write A Gentleman in Moscow, uh, you know, and that began with Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, but then, you know, it was Gogol and Bulgakov and Chekhov and and the others. Um you know, so, so, yes, I mean, that's the library here, which has got French writing and, let's just say, Latin American writing. You know, A Hundred Years of Solitude is certainly one of my favorite books. So I've got, you know, a lot of Marquez here and, and related type of work. From a reference standpoint, it, you know, all of those are references for me. Conrad, you know, I have over in the British section, although, of course, he's born in Poland, um, but probably the greatest writer in English not to have been a native speaker of English other than maybe a, a, a Nabokov, which would be the only, you know, the, the other great one uh, uh, writing in English, but not where it was his second language. Over there is the uh, is Aristotle and Plato and uh, Nietzsche and Descartes, and <clears throat> as well as you know, compendiums of folk tales from Ireland, from India, from. Uh, uh, Russia, from uh, the the the, the mytholo- mythologists and the mythologies uh, of Greeks, Greece and Rome, as well as Homer, you know, which are foundational type of works to refer to mm. Shakespeare for the same reason.
1: And I love this sense of time travel, but I think the wonderful thing about reading is, is widely and is committedly as you do is you're constantly being yanked backwards and forwards and yes. so many writers are making so many different references that you follow a thread and suddenly you're yep. in the 1200s and...
0: yeah absolutely yeah and that you if you're reading something deeply and and uh and as a and the classical or, or when a philosophical idea is being surfaced it is a pleasure to go back and dig into that original material and sort of see how it resonates with uh, the novel that was written 500 years later or what have you, or 300 years later.
1: And I think it comes back to what you were saying as well about, you know, after sort of the dust has settled and the hype has died down that these books that really are that we're still turning to sort of 50 years later or, you know, hundreds of years later yes. um, you know, that that's, I think sort of, the further back you go the more these texts are still being passed around, then they're, you know, they've still got truth to tell us. That's exactly
0: right. Yeah, that's right, and, and it's not and it's interesting, if you look at the ones that have survived, they tend to be, at some level, very entertaining, but at that other level, importantly, extremely rich and nuanced, right? So, so but you know, for it's not to write a book which is rich or informative and nuanced, but not to be engaging, is, mm. is, is, it's not going to survive as well. Absolutely. Because you know, ultimately, you need people to want to go back and see it and to enjoy the process yeah. of reading it, um, but they need to be enriched by it too. And so, yeah, this, it's, a, it's a small group. Think, that I mean, survives.
1: I felt that way about Wharton when I first read her being yeah. quite anxious, I think. I felt that she's very serious and really, really being taken aback and thrilled by how funny and observant and clear she was. Are there yes. any yes. writers like that for you where you've really sort of gone in expecting something yes. a little bit dry and then found them very vivid and Yeah, well, you know,
0: and, and again one of the pleasures of reading these kinds of books is in some cases I, my my friends and I we, as a as a generation, we read them in college or in high school. And uh, we, my friends and I were recently, in my my group, we read uh, a bunch of Russians a few years ago. And we had read, maybe we read five novels of Dostoevsky. And when we were reading Crime and Punishment, which is the first of the five that we read, um, we all had all read it at the age of 19. And we all remembered it as a, you know, burdensome task, you know, as a, a heavy book with a dark, you know, uh, philosophical bent and, uh, you know, a dark moral uh, viewpoint and sort of a slog, you know, we kind of remembered it that way. And and when we returned to it in our, you know, at this point we were in our late 40s, we couldn't believe how entertaining it was. You know, it is a total page turner and uh, the investigation of the detective, you know, hounding Raskolnikov is, is great... Uh, as in its depiction, um, in the back half of the novel, there's a, a sociopath who kind of falls into Raskolnikov's circle, who's an amazing and chilling character. Um, the women, the relationship to the women in the book was, was very nuanced and moving. Uh, and something that none of us remembered. Mm. We found social comedy in the book that none of us remembered. <clears throat> and yes, the philosophical stuff that we all remembered from our first reading of Russians was there. But it was a part of this bigger fabric of a much more engaging reading experience uh, than we recalled as young people. And um, so that's part of the pleasure of going back, You know, because these books were not really written for 18-year-olds. Yes. <laughs> and there's, there's, a, there's a point of view that the 18-year-old has which is going to limit the amount of satisfaction they can gain from a book like that.
1: Absolutely. These books are really more and more relevant the more life you live. Yes, and uh, yeah. you have to sort of see how well-observed and how resonant and relevant it yeah. is and to have lived it, to, to know it, I Total. guess. And well, I hope there are no creepy um, sociopaths sort of hanging yeah. out the back of your no. books or
0: your No, but, 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 you know, the Wharton that you're pointing to is a good example. We are reading that. We're reading that with my friends. We're doing a, a project. We're going to read a series of, of American female writers of the 20th century, and you read, you know, four or five novels of each in chronological order. So we, we, we started with House of Mirth, and we read Comfort the Country. We're reading Age of Innocence now, Again, relative to our memory uh, of reading Wharton as younger people, it's so much more uh, engaging and thoughtful. And and, to the point you were just making, part of the reason that's true is because so much of it is about marriage and Mm. about uh, the expectations of the general of when you're in middle age, uh, how you know, uh, or (coughs) or when you're thirty, how the fifty-year-olds are looking at your decisions and. uh, that early stage of marriage or, the, or, or what have you. Um, and you don't, as an 18-year-old, really have the perspective or experience to fully understand um, either the relationship issues involved, the personal issues involved in terms of building one's identity, or the, the multilayered social mm. aspects that are, are so intrinsic to her writing.
1: Absolutely. Because at 18,
0: you haven't really been through
1: it. You think, well, why don't people just say what they mean and yeah. do
0: what they say they're going yeah. to do? Like, no, of course, nobody does that. Nobody you? does that.
1: Right. Do you know, um, I'm sure you've um, come across um, Joan Powell, who I guess she's a little bit yes. later, but I love yes. her, and yeah. I think she's someone I wish was better known in the uh, UK.
0: And actually, that's one of the people that we think, in this project of doing some Americans in a row, uh, I think that we will do a few of her books. She's she's frankly not that well-known in the United States, you know, and is an amazing... American female writer that is not uh, as broadly read as, as she probably deserves mm. to be.
1: I think you're right. I mean, I think, and I think this is a very good thing. That we're aware that much of the canon is sort of quite white and male, and there are various sort of reasons for that. And I think it's exciting and hopefully progressive that that's being questioned. And I think part of it as well is it was easier for those people to have the opportunities to, to get published, yes. I guess. But are yeah. you, in well, reading sort of all and other female writers, are you noticing any kind of differences in terms of if, you know, there, there is a gendered lens or do you just feel like a, a book is a book and a writer is a writer? You
0: know, I don't think that that's a dominant factor. We, we certainly benefit as readers from the fact that, that uh, by the early 20th century or by the late 19th century, women were being published alongside men. Hmm. White on the white basis, right? You know, certainly, if we look at uh, English writing, you know, Jane Austen is is a 19th century pinnacle, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and and so. uh, But but yes, we 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 benefit from that. Um, But what makes Wharton or Austen great is that they are writing in a way that men and women can read it mutually, and that it comments on humanity in a very open fashion. Um So that people of different races could read it, and people of different ages, people from different social classes uh, I think could enjoy Wharton just as we did Shakespeare and you know the thing about the canon is is that the what what gets included in a decade of the canon as you say, is is to some degree an accident of what happened in society fifty years before mm. because it takes time for social change to show up you know. In the canon, yes, you know what I mean.
1: Because people, people are going to write about it yeah. and write it well, they've got to live it for they, some time before well, they can. And also,
0: the book has to survive, as you say, for hmm. fifty years. So, okay. and if you look at, um, I mean, I'm very, I'm a canonist. Clearly, uh, from the way I'm talking, you can tell I'm, I'm very, uh, I have a very positive viewpoint about about what is going on in the Western canon, in literature in particular. Um, because if you look at America, for instance, there is no question that. The publishing arena is far more ahead uh than society in incorporating the voices of otherness now now so that doesn't show up necessarily in the canon in school today, but if you look up at what at what's been written and published and prized in the last thirty years in the United States, it's absolutely uh, you know a uh, an extremely diverse body of work. Uh, ethnically, by social class, by gender, by, you know, you name it. And if you look at some of the most important writers that have come out of the last 40 years, you know, you have Roth, who's a white male, but he's a Jewish, you know, uh, white male, who would have been an outcast, you know, relatively speaking, in 1900. It's Toni Morrison. uh, Obviously, you know, right now, in this moment in time, it's people like Colson Whitehead, Mm. you know, or African-American, you know, writer out of of New York. There is a robust uh, uh, output of these voices. So, but it takes, if you went back to 1850 in the West, uh, or 1800 in the West, the vast majority of people of any color were illiterate, you know, <laughs> relatively speaking. You know, you didn't, they, were, they didn't have access to, they weren't allowed to go to school. They, uh, you know, so, so it wasn't just that the publishing industry wasn't publishing people other voices. <laughs> Uh, the poor did not have a- access to uh, publishing a voice for the most part. It was a long slog to end up in a position where you were self-taught in how to read, read enough that you have a sophisticated style, and then find a publisher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, it's a very tough gating factor. Well, those gates have been pulled down in the United States, for sure, over the last uh, 50 years. And and you've seen that s- surge of uh, in American writing, uh, the Asian-American voice starting in the 70s with Maxine Hong Kingston and Amy Tan that continues today. And uh, the Native American voice in America that, you know, begins with people like Louise Erdrich, uh, uh, you know, 30 years ago. And, and you know, more recently, you know, award winner Tommy Orange, you know. And uh, you see it in terms of, as I say, the uh, gay writing. And uh, going back to James Baldwin, the, the African-American uh, voice, uh, you know, being... Uh, coming out of the 40s and 50s, but very strongly. And, uh, and so it, it takes not only for that group to have access to education mm-hmm. and literacy um, to then be encouraged uh, to find their own voices. Then you need a publishing industry that is willing to print those voices, mm-hmm. which requires that the existence of an audience who's shown interest in those voices. You know, these are all gating factors, and, and, and we've had that. So what we don't know is who out of that incredible explosion of diverse voices is going to be here 50 years from now. It's definitely not going to be all white men. That's yeah. for sure, you know. So, so it's because it's going to be based on the quality of the, indiv- of the, indiv- of the work. But, so what I can guarantee you is that the canon, as it looks back over 100 years in, you know, American English writing, it will be ex- much more diverse than it was as it was defined in 1900. And that's not uh, the quality of the books, aren't necessarily going to be better or worse. They're still going to be rich, and that's why they survived. But you're going to have a much more varied group of voices that are contributing to it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare. Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. Now it's time for my Steal of the Week, the book version of a case of vintage champagne served by a team of lobsters in glasses made from diamonds and bitcoins. This week it's I Never Said I Loved You, the memoir by the Guardian columnist Rick Sameda. Fans of Rick's journalism will know he is very, very funny. But this book isn't just a comic masterpiece. It's a moving, devastating and stunningly candid exploration of living with mental health problems, the complications of loving and understanding your family and trying to make sense of your own humanity. Sometimes it's euphoric, sometimes it's painful, but it's not a chapter before lights out sort of a book. Once you've picked it up, it will stay in your hands until you've turned the last page. That's "I Never Said I Loved You" by Rick Zamadera, published by Headline and I have Now. Now, back to a more. Now you don't have to answer this, um, if you would prefer not to. But of the sort of. Contemporary voices, and by contemporary I mean the last fifty years, maybe still alive. Who do you think will be reading still in a hundred years?
0: Well, you know, Toni Morrison for sure. I think probably Toni Morrison is, uh, you know, post-war America would be, you know, one of the single most important invo- important voices, and um, writes with great uh, inventiveness, uh, great compassion, great intricacy. And uh, across a body of work, you can feel that it's a body of work, and yet she's exploring different narrative styles, different uh, themes, you know, which have resonance with each other but are are varied. Um, So, so, you know, somebody like that's going to be, there's no question. Now, maybe that's cheating because she's, you know, um, she was writing in the last 15 years but has recently passed away. If you're talking about who started writing in the last decade, then, you know, that's anybody's guess.
1: I'd argue that. Tony Morrison, sort of, you know, embedded in the culture yeah, and the there. canon
0: yeah.
1: um, already. But I think it's interesting going back, I suppose, to um, talking about your book group when you've got a writer who is so thrilling to read but also not afraid to experiment and how you can see how their work changes and shifts and how yes. their
0: voice matures. Yeah. Um, that's why we like to read a single author chronologically is just for that reason. That's right.
1: So I'd love to hear your insights about that and any particular authors that you've read where you've really noticed that shift and that evolution.
0: Well, you see it in anybody. I mean, that's the nature of, of reading. And that's true even, by the way, in reading the crime novels or something. But mm. but, 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 yes, you, when you're reading uh, Faulkner chronologically, you're reading Morrison chronologically, you're reading Philip Roth chronologically, you are seeing the evolution of... of a point of view, of uh, new challenges are being taken on. Not all writers would bother to do that. Some writers can write eight novels that the eighth is not that different than the first, you know, and uh, obviously, uh, I I, I like genre fiction. A lot of genre writers write like that. You know, each book is kind of like the last to some degree. and, And I think
1: very occasionally, perhaps, I think this is much more an issue in contemporary fiction writing, that you have a writer who becomes sort of incredibly successful and it gets a little sloppy, you know, you've got a book that's like, you know, 10,000 pages long and you think the editor really should have gone in on this a bit more rather than be like, oh no, but they're fabulous and it'll sell all the copies, it's fine.
0: No, no, that definitely can happen. It is possible to write a great book or two and and be a capable writer where you do not, over the course of a career, generate a body of work that's going to stand the test of time, right? I mean, it is... Uh, that happens all the time. There are a lot of 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 tantalizing books of the last forty years where they're not necessarily one-offs, but they're close to it. You know, in terms of the, that how that author uh, stacked up over time. So yeah, it's an added challenge for those writers that, that are going to strive time to not simply write a great book, but to to build on that to by through experimentation, through a commitment to ideas, through. Uh, an ongoing curiosity, which to some degree requires stamina. you know these people have to be willing to leave whatever success has given them, ignore it for a minute, go back and retreat into a into privacy and uh, and push back how their ego has been rewarded by their success um, and and find new cause to investigating something from scratch, you know, and and that's kind of what it requires to start doing uh, to to you know where the fourth and fifth and sixth books are are, are quite striking. I I, I I don't mean to keep returning back to Roth. I, I'm not he's not one of my biggest heroes, but as I said, we read him in the last two years, so he comes to mind. One of the most amazing things about to me about reading Roth chronologically is, um, and he, he created a huge body of work. I'm sure not all of it is is worth you know a reader's time, but but. The fact that American uh, Pastoral and Human Stain, which are clearly two of his greatest books, came quite late in his career is an amazing achievement in its own right. You know, he had written many, many books by the time, and shorter books in many cases, um, and books that in many cases were more similar to each other. Working his way towards, uh, you know, these two novels that are... Much more challenging, much more intricate, much more intriguing, um, stylistically, much more impressive. You know, what I mean, they're, they're uh, and that, that's quite extraordinary when you think about that. Like a writer of of that talent to 30 years into his mm. career to keep finding a new uh, level of, of depth and breadth in his work. I mean, that's amazing. I think
1: that's really inspiring and really hopeful. Yeah, right. I mean, I figure <laughs> this is why writers are not right. athletes. You don't want to do yeah. your best work before you're 30, yeah. you want to keep. Keep building I, on it and keep yeah, doing get, it.
0: Yeah, you get like someone like Fitzgerald. And it was like all over by the time he was forty-five or whatever. You know, I don't even remember. Oh, but you know, it's painful. Um, but
1: love those novels. But he made some bad choices. That yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: true. You know, he paid the price for his bad choices.
1: Uh, what was the last book that you gave to someone as a gift?
0: Last book I gave to someone as a gift. Or the last
1: book you
0: were given as a gift? Yeah. Do people
1: buy you books, or do they figure that you have everything you want and need already?
0: You know, I, I the last thing I, the, I'll tell you, the, I haven't given it yet. Ooh. But this. I had never seen before, but I was in London, oh no, this isn't the one that was in London, uh, where is it? Well anyway, I, this I uh, uh, my, my friends who I read with, um, a, some number of years ago our project was we read, we took a year and we read winners of the Nobel Prize in Literature um, who did not originally write in English, where we collectively had not read their work. and. Uh, so we read uh, Kenzaburo Oe from Japan. Uh, we read um, we read some Th- Thomas Mann. We'd all read the, uh, we'd all read The Magic Mountain, but we hadn't read much of Mann and we read, you know, we all loved Buddenbrooks was an amazing uh, book. But we we then read uh Mahfouz, Naguib Mahfouz, who is the uh, the first uh, writer to win the Nobel Prize in Literature in Arabic. And he wrote three novels which are called the uh, Cairo Trilogy. Uh, and they, it's an incredible uh, body of work, an amazing uh, group of novels. So th- uh, this just came out, which is uh, a group of short stories by him. So this is what I'm giving to my three reading friends. Is Oh, lovely. Who
1: publishes that?
0: That one is, uh, I, you know, yeah, I don't even, I do not even heard of it. Saki, what is this?
1: Saki, S-A-Q-I. And the forward is by Alif Shafak, um,
0: you know, alumni. The, the, this is a yeah. This is a British publication, I think. There's Simon Seabag on the back. Ah. Making it, yeah. But so. Can you uh, remember
1: where you got it from? Which shop in there? Ju- ju- no,
0: Actually, you know, I, I, this one I actually got in the United States. But, ah. it, but it must. I wonder if it's an import. I don't know. But it says. Well, I guess it's got the two different prices. But yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know whether whether it's where it's originally United. But anyway. So yes, that I'm excited about. I have not read it yet, but I got four copies so that I can give them to my friends.
1: Fabulous. Um, so then I guess they will have to get you a gift of some description, so you might have all sorts of exciting books coming your way. Right. May I see what else is in this pile?
0: This is a gift from my brother, which I have not read. Uh, Harry Matthews is an American writer uh, who died some years ago, who, I, I, who I have, I, I'm fond of. Jonathan Lethem's Motherless Brooklyn, I haven't read it yet, the movie's coming out. But uh, Jonathan is an acquaintance. And, uh, and you like have to, to get that.
1: it before the edition comes out. Yeah, it's now a major motion picture. I know.
0: This is um, uh, uh, James Baldwin's Go Tell it on the Mountain. Uh, my, my new novel, is, um, which I'm trying to finish in the course of the next few months, is or next six months, is set in the mid-50s in the United States. And so when I'm writing a book, I, I often like to read around it. I don't want to read a book that's like the book I'm writing. Mm. But I like to read books that are kind of set in the time period, uh, that were written in the time period, excuse me. Um, And so my book's set in 1954, and so I have read uh, this year um, so far, or the last two years, three years, um, uh, Flannery O'Connor's First Collection of Short Stories is from then. Uh, James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain is from then. Uh, look at this, this? Yeah. Really stunning. Is
1: that a first edition? No, but it is a reprint of the
0: first edition. It's... Ah, so, so that's the. Um... Uh, it's a Knopf. Yeah, Knopf re-released this as an anniversary edition.
1: It's beautifully done. it's, yeah, almost it's like very the, well um, done. The Folio Society ones. I don't. Yeah, know it's, it's, it's yes,
0: it's that kind of a thing. Um, and but so I, I'm reading those, and I read uh, the uh, Man in the Gray Flannel Suit was a was a famous novel from the mid '50s kind of about the, the guys who, about Mad Men, in essence, pre-Mad Men. It's about the guys mm-hmm. who went to work in their gray final suits and fedoras. Um, and what's fun to go and do a project like that for me as a writer is that Flannery O'Connor is writing about, you know, the South in 1954, and uh, it's, it's relatively impoverished, you know, in her quirky religious style. Uh, James Baldwin writing about the exact same period of time about Harlem, mm. you know, and the young... Person who's sort of coming out into himself uh, in in Harlem, and whereas the man in the gray flannel suit was written by uh, a returning vet, um, who, uh, writing about kind of this experience of the suburban white guy and you know going to work every day in Midtown Manhattan, and so you have these. Four, and I also read; I just finished uh, David Goodis's uh, two of his crime novels from 1954, um, which are kind of West Coast, very rough uh you know, Stevedore's getting stabbed on the pier kind of thing. So all these books are written within 24 months of each other. Wow. You know, but they're all, uh, and by extremely talented writers. Extremely different but yes. Exactly right. So so it's kind of that nice, healthy reminder that all of this was the Sound of America in 1954 mm. for me. I get to kind of put it down and think about it and say, oh, yeah, exactly, right. You know, um, the doc guy, the southern you know, Lady, the, you know, the, the suburban, uh, uh, the uh, young black Harlemite, all are American, all, uh, you know, at that point in time, but with very different tones, very different concerns, uh, very different landscapes that they're living in.
1: And I think that's probably how, how books endure and how one writes books that do endure because, you know, going back to that sort of the, the canon and how that's slowly becoming more diverse, that yes. I think that what we're learning now, or what I hope we're learning, is that, you know, it's not as though you only need to read books by people or about people who are like you or no, like one. Not, yeah. And that's so, And the sort of the fuller, that, you know, that sense of who people are and where they are is the richer, the the resulting book. Yes. I have to ask about the pile of hats on that chair, is oh, yeah. that to do, with, they look, always look a little bit 1954 maybe, so well, is that anything to do with the book? I think this,
0: that's that's more, that's more base, of a bull, maybe. you know, that's a, a nice British style uh, b- bowler I guess, um, but yeah, I, 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 yes I wear hats, oh, I have more yeah. than that, believe
1: me. <laughs> that's a, just a, a small sample of the hats. I, I might look at that uh, shelf of British books that's okay case yeah, well, that uh, which you know
0: it's, 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 it's probably embarrassing the show uh, we sorry we, my buddies and I we read Remembrance of Things Past and then we read uh, Anthony Poole The Dance of oh. uh, The Music of Time now there you said his name correctly very yes. good oh, yes yeah. very impressed <laughs> I
1: mean I only just learned how to um how so,
0: to know, this is Dickens Ishiguro, I mean, remains of the days is, is is a you know contemporary writer that'll be that book will last for a ever a long time. It's an extraordinary book. Conrad, who we talked about, you know, is a big hero of mine. Ford Maddox Ford's uh, uh, "The Good Soldier" is, I think, one of the greatest twentieth-century novels. I'm a Big fan of obviously Woolf and Joyce, Dickens. Um.
1: After this glares out at me because it's a book I love and it's it, not one that I expected to see on your shelf. Yeah. You have. Uh, Peyton Place. I, I have, have not re- I have oh. not
0: read that yet, but this this is all these are all the books from that mo- this moment in time I've described. Ah. So, uh Cheever, the Wapshot Chronicles, Peyton Place is a mid-50s book. Uh, that's the Flannery O'Connor we talked about, The Man in the Great Funnel Suit, John O'Hara, Cheever, um, Bellow, Welty are all writing in the mid-50s. Uh, the Movie Goer, mid to late 50s maybe. And this is the you know, American sci-fi in the 50s, which is a whole other category of what's going on at that time. That so, so this is kind of a shelf just which, once I'm done that book, all this will get moved.
1: I'm fascinated by past
0: depictions of the future. Yeah, well that's true. Yeah, right. Fascinating, yeah. Oh, these
1: look great. These are um, gonna take a little peek at that beautiful edition. I don't know if that looks... It's in such nice condition. I don't know if I, that's... And that, a...
0: I did get through a secondhand you know, format, so I don't, I don't even know when it's from.
1: Not got any doesn't have a there's no sort of right there? Oh here we go. Oh yep, copyright nineteen fifty-six. Yep. I that, but so this um, so you're organizing is that you it's whatever you're, you're working on at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's kind it's of on here. that
0: shelf. So there were a lot of Russian novels there three years ago. <laughs> don't worry if it falls down, that's right.
1: <laughs> I will make sure <laughs> it's like Jenga or something. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um do you have sort of book purges do you keep every book that comes in or do you well so I
0: feel like so this is I, I have the we have the luxury of having a country house so there's a library in the country house and so the, the lack of 20th century or post-war fiction here all those books are there you know ah. I, I'm, a, I'm a I'm a both a friend uh, and admirer of Ann Patchett I'm a friend and admirer of Richard Russo I read all their books. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a fan of Colson Whitehead's uh, uh, as well. Um, And and so all of that, my my books of kind of that era tend to be out there. Ah. Um, But, yeah, if I I read a book and I'm not very impressed by it, I don't tend to keep it.
1: Do you finish everything you start, or do you ever get to a point where you think, no, not
0: for me? I do not do that. You know, there's a... Uh, um, the great American librarian uh, named uh, Nancy Pearl and who has um, she's the she articulates this rule uh, which is the uh, which I I, I agree with and abide by which is that uh, that anybody who reads a book should be willing to make some investment in it um, that you shouldn't you shouldn't have to finish anything but you should make some investment and the way you determine the investment is that it's your age sorry it's a hundred minus your age so if you're 20 years old, you should be willing to read 80 pages in a book before you cast it aside. But if you're 80, 20 is just fine. You know? <laughs> if you're 99, give it a page. And if you don't like it, you, you can move on. You know? But yeah, so I, I'm, I'm quite happy to, to turn into something and say this is definitely not something for me and just move on. I don't, I'm not going to bog myself down.
1: Oh, that is a great rule. I guess there are, there's just so much. Yeah, there's so much. You have to make your choices. Which authors have you never read but you're excited to read? Is there anyone out there that you've never quite got to yet but they're on the, you know your future Those are always
0: plans are? percolating up. Um, you know, uh, I've never read anything by Iris Murdoch, but, you know, what people have told me is, you know, it's an amazing, amazing writer. I'd love to spend time, you know, doing that. So, you know, she'll end up uh, on a list sometime where, we you know, we'll circle back. Um, but there's all kinds of people that, uh, fit that that description I haven't read as much Dickens as I'd like I'd like to go and I'd love to do nothing more to make me happier than to spend a year working through Dickens' entire body of work or you know or most of it um,
1: because I think Dickens is possibly more in the UK but just so so absorbed and enmeshed in the culture yeah. it's very easy I think for everybody to feel as though they've read a lot more Dickens than they have yeah. because the references <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. just flow. Well, that's,
0: that's right that's right
1: uh, maybe have a look over there you've got a proper
0: library ladder well yeah. Uh, so this. It's all right. This, I'm not going to climb. This up gets it. a little weird over here. So. So, so these are. This is reference. So you know that's the OED, obviously. That's a usage. That's the Bible. A Treasury of Western Thought is a large compendium of, of quotations. Um, style guide. This is a. Uh, you know, uh, an etiquette guide. Emily Ooh. Post. These are the rules What's to Emily? card games. Happiness.
1: Yeah. Can i going to have a look at Emily Post. Yeah. That sure,
0: looks... sure. Not that I, Not that I turn to that on a weekly basis, but it's there. <laughs>
1: running after guests with it so this is um in its 17th edition well yeah um, that's
0: an older version edition though.
1: but I love that they kept kind of you know check the yeah. etiquette will change year on oh, year yeah, yeah, sure. and they um when there is no host, a hostess who is either a, wit- a widow or unmarried asks the man she knows best, a relative, if there is one present, to act as host. He gives his arm to the guest of honour and leads the way to the dining table where he sits opposite the hostess. After dinner, he leads the men to the smoking room and later to the drawing room to join the ladies. So, what if there is no man? Get an emergency man. Yeah, that's how they played it in 1920s. Yeah, that's
0: what it's sentence, right.
1: IG, right. um, we've just discovered these Paris Review
0: um, yeah, a, interviews. E- yes, okay. Those are great. I mean that they've been uh, compiling and sharing those uh, interviews with various authors, and those are great fun. When you, when, cause as I say, we read projects, or I do, so occasionally someone that we're reading will be in there. So you get to kind of go back and say, oh, "Well, I want to go here, read the Mufu's interview now that I've read the Mufu's Mafu, body of work and that kind of thing." Yes. These are great fun for me, which is well. This this is a this is an encyclopedia, oh. but it's an encyclopedia from 1938. Which is hugely fun and valuable to me because I've written a book set in 1938. Because it kind of because you can go to New York and get the population that year. You can get the you know how what the you know all kinds of and what's included is obviously very idiosyncratic.
1: And but it's much the, more reliable than Google. And you're not going to go well, down a
0: wormhole. Of- yeah, and I've owned this longer than Google existed, I guess. But 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 yeah, but it's that kind of thing. And these are these are WPA guides. The WPA was the during the Depression. Uh, the American government created this thing called the Works Projects Administration to hire painters, writers, historians, and give them jobs. And so, these were the this was the travel guide from 1938 that was written in 1938, um, and it's a, it's it's the original. It's it's not a, a, a rare edition. It's a contemporary printing of the 1938 guide. And the the WP did guides for all across the country, so you know for San Francisco, South Dakota, whatever. But again, those, it's a great resource to kind of you want to get a feel for life in the 30s, mm. that's, you know, there's no faster way to do it than because to... Because I
1: suppose it's what, what people wanted to know then. Yeah.
0: Well, its description of Times Square is incredibly vivid and poetic for the saying, you know, if you come to New York, it's 1938, if you come to New York, go to Times Square, and this is what you can expect to find. And it then gives a very detailed description, and it's like, okay, right, that's Times Square in, 19, in the 1930s. Um, but yeah, so this is kind of a lot of uh, that. This, and these are poets playwrights.
1: Oh Fab, I wanted to ask you about uh, poetry. So who, I see Coleridge, um, I see Wordsworth, um,
0: I mean there's Gates, Dickinson, Neruda, Pound, so, so T.S. Em- Eliot, you know, is a big, he's a hero of mine. The, um, Emily
1: Dickinson's having a bit of a renaissance at the moment, isn't she? There's oh, that uh, TV show. TV show
0: but... Well I mean she's never really gone out of fashion, um, uh, but, but yeah, certainly the TV will, will put her a little bit back in the spotlight.
1: I think it's really interesting. I read, I will find I'll find it and put it in the show notes. Um amongst teenage girls have got very, very and maybe that's always been the case and it's sort of that kind of yeah. you know, Sylvia Plath syndrome, but there's something about her at the moment and her sort of very, I suppose, singular vision and that driving yeah, rhythm of prose that's
0: that's true. That, that is that is ever. that's being created a little bit, as I say, by Hollywood and you know, they're they're also reinventing what in the movies and in TV, what she was like, mm. I mean, you know, in this fanciful fashion. Yeah. Um, but I
1: guess that's only happening because there is this sort of strange ground swelling know, of, you know, know. people want, know, want yeah. the Emily Dickinson content. I think that's yeah, coming well, from somewhere. Know.
0: But yeah, certainly, but as, as an American writer, Dickinson has never gone out of gone out of style, not since she was discovered.
1: Do you know, I don't read nearly as much poetry as I'd like to, and I, ne- and I think there's something maybe. about, you know, you can certain and read a novel and that's something that there's always I think space for in one's day you can tell I don't have any children um but I don't know when when I'd reach for a poem um do you think you with your book group will you have you covered we, any poets well, or we have read done,
0: done some we did Dickinson we've done Whitman uh, we've done some poetry um but it's not a big focus of ours and nor is it a, a, a Poetry is something that I read with far less frequency than, than narrative. I mean, I'm, I'm a narrativist at the end of the day. Um, and I, and I, it's important to... You learn a lot about what can be achieved in language by reading poetry closely. But, yeah, as you say, I would not read a poem a day, you know, or go to bed at night reading poetry for the most part.
1: I suppose, you know, that the, it's a lesson of style and economy. But, um, yes, that's right. Yeah, I think it's, um, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, is it... Uh, Let's look at the
0: uh, the plays as well, do we? And again, there's not a lot because I don't read a lot of theater. But you know, there's, there's uh, Miller, which of course is one of the great American playwrights. Eugene O'Neill, uh, Beckett, you know, uh, obviously a, a key player. Uh, I mean, in, in in Tennessee Williams, a major, a major American uh, playwright. So I've got you know some, but it's it's not a, it's again not my focus. If you went to the home of a playwright, I'm sure you'd find walls of drama.
1: So if you were going to write something that wasn't a novel, is that something you'd have any interest in or do you think you want to just I focus, focus on? I'm going to
0: keep focusing on novels. That's my thing.
1: I think it's, it's good to know. Uh, short fiction. I write
0: short fiction. But uh, but novel is my preferred form.
1: Um, I think we've seen a few um, short stories. Who are your favourite short story writers? Writers?
0: Uh, you know, these are some of the American writers of... of Less contemporary, more like, you know, Peter Matheson was, was a great hero of mine and, and was a friend. Um, uh, but uh, Raymond Carver, mm. uh, you know, is, is is to me, you know, one of the great um, American short story writers uh, for sure. This is somebody who I think will stand the test of time. C- Cormac McCarthy will be read for a long time from now. He's an Amer- amazing American writer. Um, but I'm a big fan of, obviously, Chekhov's short stories and and others, too. This is, by the way, that's from my brother-in-law, but I've read those. That's those are first editions of uh, of James Bond. That's the entire wow. James Bond output, except for one Kingsley Amos it's oh, yeah. driving me insane. I know. Always, but it's the James
1: Bond somethings. I can't. I haven't got much. Yeah, he, on. you know,
0: he did um, uh, the James Bond dossier. Yeah. Oh, it's, I it's kind of I a, he, it's a book he wrote about it. Yeah. About oh. Ah, and have you read all of those? I've read most of those. So. Right. And what are you, what are your thoughts? I loved them. I love them. The early ones are great fun. Mm-hmm. And they're very stripped down, which is what makes them fun.
1: And that was a gift from your brother-in-law, did yeah. you say?
0: Because he knows. He, <laughs> he knows that I, Bond was something that I read when I was a kid. Because uh, my dad was a fan. We would go to the movies. And so I read a number of the novels as a kid. And I think I had mentioned that. I meant that to him at one point. So maybe for my 40th birthday or something like that, he gave me that set. That's an amazing
1: gift. Um, yeah, were there any other books that you sort of read with your parents or you'd read alongside well, each
0: other I, I, my, my reading in crime began with my dad I mean, he was an Agatha Christie reader a, a Rex Stout reader whose uh, whose detective is narrow wolf uh, he was he read Hammett and Chandler you know so I began reading mysteries really because of uh, my dad for sure
1: and I think it's so important to see someone enjoying a book. I think it's really no, powerful true. to know that that's something. Because I think it's just you know, pretty much the most democratic hobby in the world. You just yeah. need you know the book and time, and then you, know, you can go anywhere you want to.
0: Yeah, as long as you know how to read. You're, that's, yeah, that's right.
1: Never be bored. Never be bored. Huge thanks to Amur. Follow him at Tolls on social media. Rules of Civility and A Gentleman in Moscow are out now. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, fellow paperback chasers. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the TheDaisyBee. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com booked for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at ybooked at gmail.com. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by ACAST. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. For now, I leave you with this, attributed to Albert Camus. A character is never the author who created him. It is quite likely, however, that an author may be all his characters simultaneously. See you next time.